Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Adriana I. Ramirez. And I'm Carla Lamb. Today, we're burning things down with Brian Broom. Brian Broom's debut memoir, Punch Me Up to the Gods, is a New York Times editor's pick and the winner of the 2021 Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction. His work has appeared in The Washington Post, Poets and Writers, Medium, and much more. We'll start with a clip of Brian answering a question during his performance at City of Asylum back in August of 2021. And then Carla and I will chat a little bit about family and writing. After that, we'll listen to Brian Broom's full reading from that same performance. We'll transition to an interview I just did with Brian, some conversation from me and Carla. And finally, we'll get to what we're reading and some thoughts for the road. Welcome. Bienvenidos. So Carla, I have to tell you, I switched up the structure a little bit and we're going to listen to Brian answering a question from the Q&A at the beginning just because I felt that it was hard to break up a reading of a chapter from a memoir. Yeah, (laughs) I love variety. Let's do it. All right. So let's kick this off by listening um, to Brian answer a question. My question is, what have been your family's reactions or your favorite family reactions to your readings and publishings? I I mean, yeah, I told everybody's business um, in my book, you know, and like I said, when I first started writing and I thought I I really forgot or didn't really understand the fact that people were going to read it. Like, you know, you get in this groove and I was like, well, this, it feels so good to get off my chest. And then my agent was like, we're three days out from publication. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, I forgot that it was, that was going to happen. So, you know, these are very personal stories. They're super embarrassing stories. You know, I like to think of them as cautionary tales. Um, please don't live your life like I, I did. Um, and I was really very worried about the, my mother. Um, I was worried about her reaction, um, just my whole family and, you know, cause I didn't, I didn't, I wanted to tell the truth, but I didn't want to push it to the point where I was hurting anyone. And I, after the book came out, I thought maybe I, maybe I didn't engage that well. Um, and my mother told me that she wasn't going to read it. Uh, she's very clear about that. I'm not reading this thing. Congratulations, baby. <laughs> you know, you put it, you wrote a book. That's, isn't that nice if you bless your heart? But mama's not going to read it. Um, and she told me that several times. And so I sent her a copy anyway and signed it, you know, just so she could put it up on her shelf and say my son wrote a book. And then a few days later, she, she actually uh, called me. And she said, I read it. Uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, she, she said, you nasty. Um, and that she had to like skip over some parts. But um, the reaction I got was not what I thought. And she said she was sorry, you know? And that was like the last thing I wanted was for my mother to be sorry about her doing the best she could, you know, uh, when I was growing up. And I, you know, I told her, you, know, you don't have to be sorry. That's like the, the last thing that I want to hear. And we had a really great talk about her life and my life. And, you know, my mother has just started to actually say gay. She says it kind of in this weird way, though. She's like, my son is gay, but we're getting there. You know, we're getting there, you know, and um, it's because of the book. 
my brother reached out, he read it, um, and he apologized, which was very strange too. I mean, I was getting a lot of uh, reactions that I didn't expect. Um, he explained to me, you know, when we were growing up that he was fighting the same battles that I was fighting, you know, and he was sorry that if, uh, if he sort of used me to, uh, as a shield at times. So the reactions have been great, you know, and then my mother started critiquing little things, and I was like, oh. <laughs> Oh shit! Here we go. You know, like things that she thinks that I remembered. You know, not anything that would uh, would affect the story at all, but just little bullshit things. Like you know, you no, know, our our flower garden was beautiful. How could you say it was ugly? You know, those kinds of things. But all in all, I haven't gotten. Um, terrible reactions. I have gotten some people who are in the book who are not happy with their representation in the book and I'm like, fuck you, you know what you did. Like, um, so yeah, uh, but my favorite uh, and the most moving uh, reactions I've gotten have been from my mom and my brother. Amazing. <laughs> yes, so I, I thought this was a really great way to kind of introduce Brian a little bit. So as usual, Carla, I have a question for you. When you write about your family, do you imagine how they'll respond? You know, not anymore. I think it stunts a poet to, mm. you know, like the inner critic, like, oh my gosh, what will they think? I do share my work with my family, like later on, like after it's mm. published and my family has come to some of my readings where, yeah, my poetry is really vulnerable about, um, you know, all of these things that I've experienced, a lived experience, no, I, I like to say. I understand that completely. Like I, yeah. I was, think it's so much easier in some ways for me to tell, you know, a thousand strangers something mm. oh, deeply yeah. intimate and personal about myself um, that I'm not yeah. sure I could talk about with like my dad. Right. But at the same time, I think my like a recent reading that I did, like my dad didn't necessarily read too deep into it either. He did, was like, mm. oh yeah, congrats. Okay, cool. You got published. You did a reading. I'm here for you supporting and like love him for that for sure. <laughs> But I feel like my mom was the one that's like, okay, let me see here what this means. Like, let me read between the lines. And then it's like, like I don't want to like bring that up in, over dinner after the reading, you know? <laughs> oh, what a delightful yeah. fantasy. Like, what? A, how amazing are your parents? Like, your dad's just like, oh, here, okay, uncon yeah. unconditional support. And your mom is like, let me close read your work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's like but the best of both worlds in so many regards. And and also, you know, like the worst, because now you've got people interrogating your feels, right? I've written about, you know, past lovers and things like that. And if and if that person happens to read it, then they'll know. But if mm -hmm. like to the audience, to the general audience, like I'm not going to necessarily name names, even though sometimes I did. I love conversations with poets <laughs> where they're like, I'm never going to do this except for the time that I totally did it. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I totally did that. And like, I love your family and I love Brian's family who's like, yeah. you know, like I'm not going to read it. And then, of course, they read it. And then they're yeah. like, sorry, like oh what a fantasy of a response to write something and then have your family like be like are you okay like right. i love you or like a hug or like uh, all of those years of pain and suffering and like yes and then like this beautiful art came out of it 
Yes. Whereas um, I'm like, will my family ever speak to me again? Okay. So, but when a writer chooses to take that, is that like a risk um, just to be like so vulnerable and so honest? And I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I think especially with memoir, I mean, memoir is a whole genre that exists to be like, here are my open wounds, right? Like that's the best thing about memoir is it exposes us to like different ways of being human and different experiences of being human and different understandings of what human can mean and do. Right. So memoir is great. Um, and the best memoir is memoir that is willing to self-interrogate and to be honest and to put yourself out there. But of course the risk of that is that like, you know, you might not like yourself. You might not be willing to embrace that self. You might not want to show your wards. You might be embarrassed. You might be ashamed. Your family might stop talking to you. Um, you might have people come out and say that you got it wrong somehow, right? That your own experience isn't a testament to what you think it is. And Oh, that's brutal too. Like there's so many ways in which the memoir experiment can fail. Um, you know, the worst of which is that, you know, nobody thinks you're interesting. Uh, well, and they don't yeah, read it at all. Yeah, well, that's definitely not the case here. <laughs> well, then let's let's transition. Let's listen yeah. to let's listen to Brian Reed and then let's listen to the interview and we'll meet back on the other side. All right. Yeah, could you? Yeah, it's off. There you go. Can I, is it, can get this off? Yeah, off, yeah. Yeah, I hate being... Yeah, do it. Yeah, there you go. I gotta, have, I gotta rock star there this. Go. All right. <laughs> hey, everybody. How's it going? Um, I'm going to read a whole story from um, my book, Punch Me Up to the Gods. Um, I have to warn you that this uh, story does have adult language and situations, um, but you look like you can handle it, so. I think I'm, I'm just gonna direct this whole story to you. This is a story about being uh, super gay and lying about it. It's called Game Theory. Ain't you even gonna take those off? I can tell from my position that she has asked this question to the ceiling. She sounds exasperated. I don't know what she's referring to. I am as naked as I can be, and so is she, what with me having removed removed her panties with my teeth, like she asked. She's on her back with me on top, my head hidden between her inner thighs. We couldn't be more naked. I look up between her legs and can't see a thing from behind the foggy force fields that are my spectacles. She is now looking down at me through the valley of her thighs and waves to me by wiggling her fingers, suggesting that I've forgotten that she's even up there. Her brows are knitted. Her exasperation is quickly turning to concern. You okay down there? Without removing my hands from her buttocks, I push my face into the bed and shake my head rapidly in a no motion that's only meant to clean my glasses on the sheets. She takes this the wrong way. She sits up quickly and snatches my glasses off my face. Boy, give me those. She pauses for a long while and then sighs. Yeah, it's not working for me either. We are both 20 years old. 
she is my girlfriend. I met her at college at Akron, at Akron. I ran away from that place, but she stayed on. She is gorgeous and smart, and her skin is softer than anything I've ever touched. When I met her, she was the roommate of a friend of mine, and I knew that I just had to have her. For what, I'm not sure. But she ticks all the boxes. Her skin is dark as mine. She speaks proper English. She is feminine and small. I'm lying, but maybe I don't know that I'm lying. She and I have been kissing all day. Kissing is easy. Her lips are inviting and plush. We kissed on the campus of a college in Oakland in front of a large phallic building called the Cathedral of Learning. We made out in full view of everyone and I was wrapped in a warm and relaxing normalness that I've never felt before. Black man, black woman, perfect harmony. I held her hand as we walked down the street and I basked in all the tacit looks of approval that we received from the people walking toward us. I squeezed her hand tighter, maybe a little too tightly. She rested it from my grip, smiled and said, easy. Perhaps she mistook my grip for love. But it may be that I was clinging to something else entirely. We strolled the sidewalk in a Jewish neighborhood under one umbrella like out of a movie, and an old man with a deeply Yiddish accent stopped us to tell us that we were such a good-looking couple. <laughs> we are. I kissed her in front of him to seal the deal. She smiled. He smiled his approval at our young black love. Everything is just as it should be. I want to do this all day. I want to be her protector, the father of her children. My voice is deeper when she is on my arm, my shoulders less rounded. I feel like I could fight. Vi, the good-looking couple. <laughs> the man yells at our backs as we walk away, waving our goodbyes. But we can't walk around all day. She's only visiting for the weekend, and we will need time alone together. We have never had any time alone together. Most of our relationship has been over the phone. I have suggested everything in this city to do to stall for time. She has eaten and walked and sightseen her fill, and now she is ready to see where I live. She has a look in her eye that I have been dreading, a look that signals a reckoning. The sky opens up with more rain on our way back to my apartment. We run, dodging raindrops under the single umbrella, but inevitably get soaked to the skin. There are thunderclaps that start out from far away and get closer and closer as we run. There are lightning flashes that seem to land mere feet from us. Everyone on the street is running for their lives. I'm running faster than she is, and she has to stop me. She has to pull me back. Come back, she says. I have the umbrella. We are laughing and splashing in puddles until we get to my front door, where the gutters on either side of us are pouring waterfalls as we blow out plumes of steam from our mouths, panting and gasping. I put the key in the door and hear the loud click sound that it makes, signaling our salvation. It is dry and quiet inside, but we can still hear the muffled rain outside. It's a little chilly inside my shabby apartment, but she wastes no time removing her wet clothes. She takes off her shoes. This is a nice place, she says, as she looks around, not really meaning that. She makes her way to the bedroom confidently, as if she's always known where it was. She's pulling at her blouse. It's stuck to her head because she hasn't undone the buttons. 
She's trapped herself, arms overhead, as if in a straitjacket. I attempt to help her escape. Wait, move your arm. Hold on, hold on. You're making it worse. When she is free, she looks into my eyes and we kiss. She's wearing a white bra, which glows in the burgeoning moonlight against her pretty brown skin. She drops her pants and steps out of them toward me in one motion. We kiss and I wrap my arms around her. I am fascinated by her breasts against my chest. I am fascinated by how soft she is all over. I'm fascinated by how small she is, but all I am is fascinated. We fall into bed kissing and I begin to remove my clothes because I guess that's what you do and I'm waiting for something to happen. I'm waiting for sex to take over. And I feel nothing apart from the action of removing my clothes and now my skin is clammy. She feels nice and warm next to me and I wonder if this is all there is to it. But I keep kissing her hoping that something will kick in. And she is writhing a little with her head thrown back and pushing the top of my head down further and further until I arrive where she wants me. And I look at the space between her legs where I am once again fascinated. I'm fascinated by nothing but the mere spectacle of absence between her legs. The sheer not there of it all. She's hot between her thighs and smells like the earth and I know what I'm supposed to do now. So I dive in, I slam my face in like I'm bobbing for apples. And she taps me on top of the head, gentle, gentle. So I pull back a little and I look at it and I stick my tongue out. But, little, but a little bit is more than enough. More, more, she says. So I try a middle ground, but her gyrations are becoming slower and slower. And I, can tell, I can't tell if this means I'm doing it right or not. I place my hands between her buttocks so she knows that I really mean business with this thing. <laughs> but I'm not getting much of a response. So I pull back and look at it. I look it square in the face and decide that I will conquer it. I kiss it, then I pull back again. I kiss it again. I pull back again. I kiss it again. She's stopped moving altogether. <laughs> I keep going, but I feel her enthusiasm dying. You okay down there? I look up and she is a blur behind my smeared glasses. She tells me, come up here. And I do. I lay beside her on the bed and she looks down at my dick and just knows that it's been checked out the entire time. I ask her, you want me to try again? No, she says. Every time I look down, you're looking at my pussy like it's made out of math. <laughs> she turns over on her side away from me, and I play the outside spoon. I hope down to my bones that she doesn't think it's her that's the problem. It's me. It's me. I'm the problem. I'm a liar. We lay in silence for a while until I break it. You warm enough? Yeah. You want some more blankets? Yeah. I cover both of us in blankets in my one last attempt to be her protector, the father of her children. Normal. I ask her, what do you want to do tomorrow? She snuggles her butt up closer to, my, closer to me and sighs before she answers, I don't know, what do you want to do? 
I know that there will be no more hand-holding, no more kissing, no more putting on a show. I searched my depths for an answer that isn't a lie. I don't know what I want to do tomorrow. I honestly and truly have no idea. Thank you. everything I've read about you and what people have been asking you about has been a lot about blackness, masculinity, queerness. And so I wanted to start with what is the question that nobody has asked you about the book that you've like wanted to answer? What isn't in the conversation is that I really have gone through most of my life believing that I am just a piece of garbage. Um, yes, I think that comes across, especially yeah. at the beginning of the book, right? The, I actually wrote in the margins like, man, sometimes it's hard to read because I feel like I just want to hug you and be like, feel better. But just like off the page, I, I hope that people are um, inspired to not think that about themselves. You know, like not necessarily anything to do with the book itself, but like, you know, I just really, you know, when I wrote the book, uh, you know, when I was writing the book, I thought, you know, I hope other black gay boys like read this book so that they don't make the mistakes that I made and they don't think so lowly of themselves. And, you know, I, I, I thought I was writing for a specific, very, very, very specific audience. But, you know, I, it turns out that a lot of people feel really low in themselves and, um, because of the messages that society sends you about who you're supposed to be and how much money you should make and how you should look and, you know, all these things. So what you're saying is capitalism is problematic. Yes, I'm saying that <laughs> all the time, like all the time. Like um, and, you know, we've been sort of tricked into into thinking that things are really some things are really important that aren't, you know, like. We've our value system has been tr like flipped upside down. So the people who you know make money off of our insecurities continue to make money off of our insecurities. Um, and okay, so so this leads me to ask you then: Would you say this is a Gen X book? Because it feels like you know I think the only thing that really really screams Gen X in um, my book is you know, the fact that we're well, uh, you know the Genco jeans. <laughs> With the rubber bands, with the rubber bands, the bands such a I great detail. <laughs> I couldn't afford real Jenko jeans. You know, I've talked, I've had opportunity to go to high schools um, and talk to uh, young people about the book. And I found that they're like, they really relate to it. So uh, it seems that a lot of the problems that are presented in the book are still out there. You know, homophobia, sexism, racism, um, you know, misogyny, noir, um, um, just all kinds of uh, things. They're still out there. So I don't particularly think of it as a Gen X book. I think it takes place obviously at, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at the height at the youth of Gen X. And there are, you know, kids coming from the eighties. I think uh, there was a lot of real pressure put on uh, us by capitalism to be rich. And it was the, you know, the eighties was the, the age of excess. And, you know, my family did not have an excess of anything. So it left me feeling like I was less than. So in that way, you know, maybe it's a Gen X book, but I yeah. think that those problems are still out there. I mean, I think the problems are still out there. I think it's certainly a matter of sort of how we look at them. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I think so many kids today, like, I don't know, I was talking to a couple of millennial poets last week. Uh, and it was really fascinating because underneath it all, there was this sense of injustice. Or there was this sense of it shouldn't be this way or, you know, we are beautiful or, you know, and I feel like maybe it's because I was reading you right after the conversation. <laughs> I just kept thinking, yeah, the self-loathing feels about right for my age group. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, there's no there's no hope in you as a 12-year-old. You're just like, maybe maybe I'll just leave and be getting the F out of here is the best I can do. Right. You know? But there's That's no sense. Right. You're not gonna give a speech at homecoming and people are gonna applaud in this, but you know, like and maybe absolutely. those are the part that feel Gen X to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about structure. Because, you know, you have in the book kind of, um, you know, the the bus frame that's happening. And then we go in and out of your memories in a fairly chronological order leading up to this moment. But then we have certain sections where we have like back and forths and we start to play with time. Um, And so, you know, I've always been told, like, be consistent, 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 consistent. And yet I like the fact that it took risks with structure. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that for the writing nerds. We try to make everyone happy. For the writing nerds. You know, it was, uh, I remember um, when we were, when I first got, um, I I got a book deal and I was all excited and uh, I met, my editor, um, Rikia Clark, who is a force of nature. Um, and we were first sitting down to start editing. Um, and I think the, I think it's the second story or third story in the book. Like I shifted time and she was like, I don't, I don't understand what you're doing. Like, what are you doing? Um, and she was like, why is this in the past? tense?" We, we were talking about tense. She was like, why is this in the past tense? This is, this should be in the present tense. Or I wanted to write it in the present tense. And she was like, why are you not writing it in the past tense? And that was the first sort of like, you know, hiccup we, she and I had like in terms of writing the book and we went back and forth, back and forth on it. And, and I had tried to write it in the past tense and it just wasn't, it wasn't working for me. And I finally wrote to her and I said, look, I, I, this has got to be, I got to write this in the present tense. It doesn't work for me otherwise. And what's really great about her is that she just trusted me to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's when the sort of the time shifting started happening. Um, cause if you do, I I think the only symmetry that, 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 that is actually true is is for me is if you do it once, then you got to do it again, you know? (laughs) Like if you, if you, if you go, if you shift time once and you got to shift time again, so that the, you know, well, so it seems deliberate uh, and not sloppy, yeah. right? Yeah. So it seems deliberate. And so that the reader doesn't get confused and like, why is he doing this? And, you know, so, um, and I also wanted to, um, remain true to the structure of the poem that the book hinges on. Um, so I couldn't write, you know, there are certain lines in the poem that, that call up the past and there are certain lines in the book that call up the present and there are certain, you know, so I had to kind of shift time to, to just remain true to the structure of the poem. And there were times where I didn't really think it was going to work. I mean, you know, you know, when you write something and you're like, this isn't going to work. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't, but luckily with her uh, help, Rakia's help, like it, 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 it did end up working, but it was rough going there for a minute. Yeah, I think I have like uh, 15 different versions of chapter four of my book. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yes, <laughs> I understand that feeling completely. So would you say that it, you, it sounds like you kind of just went with your gut? I did. I did. Um, there were off, there were so many times where I was just like, oh, this isn't going to work. You know, and like you said, like, you know, you look back at your book and you see all the different versions of it and all the different iterations of it. And you you're the only one who really you and your editor, like, are the only ones who have a real like, you know, knowledge of what this book has gone through, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I do sometimes look back on it and go, like, wow, was I really going to do that? Like that that wouldn't have worked at all. I mean, I'm still editing the book in my head. Um, oh, I understand that. Yeah. Right. Like the thing that I, you know, and it's amazing when you're a writer, like the thing that often that gets put out there isn't the thing that you intended, but sometimes that can be good. Right. You have to trust uh, in Joel Embiid, AKA the process. Um, <laughs> are there, you know, you talked earlier about talking to high school students and giving readings and having people that you wouldn't think identifying with you, which is of course so perfect and true to writing, right? We always say you find the universal in the highly specific. I think I'm interested in the writer who's thinking about writing a memoir and who's going, should I be brutally honest? Should I talk about what I did? Should I, you know what I mean? Should I mention like the time I lied (laughs) and said I knew the bouncer or, you know what I mean? Like, how how do you choose how much and is there a limit is there is there a place you didn't go and you know, don't tell us what it is obviously but like are there yeah. places that are sacred or do you feel like you know f it like let's just be vulnerable and and wherever the chips fall that's where they fall there were there were things in the book that i really did not want to admit to and what i did was um i I would just write it. I would just write it and be like, okay, Brian, just write it. Like nobody's going to read it. Um, and so I would write it like nobody's going to read it. And then I would walk away from it. Um, not, I wouldn't even read it over again. I would just write it like it, like I, like it happened and like uh, as embarrassing as it was to me or whatever. And then I would just walk away from it. And then I would come back to it a couple of days later and see how I felt about it. And in most cases, you know, I was like, it's not that bad. You know, after a couple of days, it's not that bad. Um, and so I would just leave it in. There were also instances where I would write it like it happened and like nobody was going to read it. And I would be like, oh, that's too much. I can't. Mm-hmm. There's a whole story that's that was taken out that I wrote like from start to finish. Um, and uh, first of all, it, it, it I was like, I don't think I'm ready to put this out there into the world. Um, and secondly, it would have made the book too long. So when they, uh, when my editor was like, yeah, this, this kind of, the story kind of doesn't, it kind of makes the book too long. I was more than happy to be like, okay, let's cut it, you know, Mm. um, because it was too much. I also, I obviously try not to, um, also hurt anybody, um, in the process of writing about things that happened to me. Like my mother was a big concern, um, writing about her. Um, I, I had to go to her. Um, and ask her if it was okay. Um, and I mean, she- you, you straight up, right? Like I hated her. Yeah. My, oh, yeah. my inner thing was like, I know your mom read this. I know your mom is <laughs> like, I know that like, I know all these things. Cause I, you know, I know you, but I, I still went like, <gasps> yeah, you know, I write the resentment that I had toward my mother, but I also tried to really impress upon the reader. And I think the reader gets it that, 
it really didn't have as much to do with her as it did with me, you know, and the stuff that I was going through at the time. Well, I think the voice, which is so strong, really confirms that it is kind of your 12 year old self, you know, that is hating your mother. And I think we can, I think we can all relate to hating our mothers when we're 12, you know, (laughs) so (laughs) there is something it's, it's still a little shocking to read because it is so honest in that way. And you, you know, you might say like, I, I felt at the time like I hated my mother, but obviously I did. You know, like that's what I would have done, right? But you're right, just like, right. no, I hated her. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I want to talk a little bit about James Baldwin, though. Okay, so obviously James Baldwin, huge presence in the book, you know, from Yona's beautiful, beautiful introduction, um, you know, through the end where you're going on your own Baldwin-esque adventure in France. Um so now that you've had, you know, so, I mean, obviously I know your thoughts on Baldwin that you've written, um, but now that you've had, you know, the, the critical distance set in and the experience of putting this out there, how do you feel about comparisons to James Baldwin? Oh, there's absolutely no comparison. Like, I mean, I, I know more about James Baldwin um, now than I did when I was younger, obviously. When I was younger, I really looked at him and I thought this man is indestructible. Like he um, is indefatigable. He is so strong. Um, I would see his clips on, like he would go on talk shows, like, you know, Dick Cavett, and he would just say exactly the thing that he wanted to say. And he was uh, forceful um, and he was angry and he was uh, so, eloquent and elegant and, i would say and elegant oh god yes i'm none of those things like um he and i thought i want to be like him but i have since learned that you know james baldwin was merely like the rest of us a human being he I, um he suffered from depression um he uh tried to take his own life like he he also uh, was vulnerable and so i was just seeing him as this superhero mm. you know Um, this super, super gay black man, you know, but he was was strong because he needed to be. um, But he also was very human. And I've I've learned to respect that as well. Um, So I've learned, you know, not to not that he's gone down in my esteem, I just know that strength doesn't always just come from like somebody just who is just strong all the time. You know, it comes from people who, who are strong when they need to be strong. And um, who are fearless when they need to be fearless. Um, so that gave me more perspective on the man himself. Well, yeah. And I mean, I would add that our, our edited selves are ostensibly our best selves. Right. Right. Or the right. selves that we're willing to put out there. Right. But I think that the self that he put out there was not just, he was, he was very generous in the sense that he was speaking, he knew he was speaking for a lot of people. Um, and, or he was speaking to the problems of a lot of people. Um, and he was willing to put himself, uh, uh, you know, kind of in the line of fire. Imagine if James Baldwin was around today and he was like on social media, he would get so much like hate mail. Um, but he didn't care. He was, um, you know, he, he seemed to be fearless, but, you know, at the same time, I did learn that he was a human being and he had problems and, um, and he wrote beautifully throughout all of it. So that's definitely admirable. Well, and I, w- I would say that we are all products of our time. Mm-hmm. You know, getting back again to a little bit to the Gen X question, I think, you know, as much as we want to resist generational definition, just because especially 
because of like white monolithic culture and its definitions of what mm-hmm. Gen X is, mm-hmm. um, we tend to overlook kind of the way that that sort of played out. Um, but I would say we are all products of the time in which we live. I mean, think about how formative it was, you know, it when September 11th happened for people who were like 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And what that did to their sense of security or to their sense of the world. Absolutely. Um, I was in college when it happened, you know, and so. I was very much like already like, okay, I was jaded and I knew things were going to change, but I, I was, I had enough critical distance to be able to be like, to critique the apparatus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. I wasn't a kid swept up in patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. Neither was I, you know, right. I, obviously we were all shocked and, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I see exactly what you're saying. So, I mean, I think in some ways, you know, like, when we say like, what would James Baldwin be like if he were writing today and he were, you know, at his age and who knows, right? How much closer or further away he would be from what you're doing. Absolutely. Well, we'll see. <laughs> we, can, we can speculate. Like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what would have like writing a memoir or writing essays or intellectual thought in a time of such immense vulnerability or in the time of social media or in the time right. of that immediate feedback? Yeah. 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 I think being a writer back then must have just been really different. You know, um, uh, you know, I did my book tour on Zoom, uh, you know, so I wasn't really like meeting people. And, you know, of course, there was a pandemic and everything. But, you know, I think that's probably going to change the way that people do book tours, like even going forward. Um, but it, it was it was a different uh, it was a different thing. It was a different time. And I know that he must have gotten a lot of hate and a lot of people just yelling and saying horrible and offensive things to him. But, you know, he kept going. And that to me is an admirable thing, you know, to be strong in the face of all of that. I think that's interesting, the way that we equate persistence with strength. Mm. I think it is a form of strength. You know, that, do you know how many times a day I want to give up? Like, I mean, it may not be the right way to think about it, but, you know, I think that there is a certain amount of those two things do link up, um, you know, to a certain degree, Um, the the ability to not give up and just say, fuck it, you know, particularly when it's not just for yourself, but it's for, you know, other people, you know, I think that's a very strong thing to do. Yeah. But I also think there's the flip side of it, right. Um, The juxtaposition, for example, you know, your father's persistence in coming around to the house. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, yeah, there's that. It was <laughs> yeah. So, oh, uh, let me get to this question before mm-hmm. we're off the book completely and go on a different path, which is, um, so let's talk about fires. Oh, I, to this day, I have like, I have like four fire extinguishers in my house. And did you I'm... burn down the health club? <laughs> I, oh my god no i was not responsible for that fire under your um, suspicious circumstances you just yeah. left, left it hanging and i was like oh, was it brian oh i didn't even know that question was out there um i did not burn maybe down it's just me no, maybe it's just me maybe it's just me you, like but your mind was working in, a, in an interesting way like it was not me um Wait, I'm going to read you the line sure. because I think it has a certain, certain, um, je ne sais quoi about it. This goes back to your first question. Is there anything that anybody hasn't asked me before? And that is definitely one. <laughs> the arena health club no longer exists and burned to the ground under what some consider mysterious circumstances. One young man died in the fire, but I can show you exactly where it was. 
which is really interesting because the last fire, you also were like, I can yeah. show you exactly That's, where it was. <laughs> that, is a, that is a connection that nobody has made yet. So well, there you go. Parallel fires. What's up with yeah. fires? <laughs> Um, I did. I did not. I, I'm swearing in front of everybody. I did not burn down the arena. Um, but there was a period where I was just there every night, you know, um, every night, just looking for something um, that was not in that building. You mm. know, um, just look. I mean, but it, it was and it wasn't like because there's a certain amount of acceptance, I guess, that goes along with sexual congress. Uh, you know, hopefully, but like. Um, you know, but it's so disassociative, that, right? It, it's it it's it stripping is. you completely of your selfhood and personhood at the same right. time. You just become like a body. Yeah. Um, but that's what was, you know, I was, I was conflating that for acceptance. Um, I also think it's very age appropriate, right? When you're trying to figure yourself out and you're in your twenties and you're like, I don't, I don't, uh, buffet, let's do yeah, it. Exactly. You know, I, um, I used to love going to that place and there was always like, you know, just ample drugs there. Like that was a, you know, it was a big cocaine time. I don't know if it's, if cocaine is still out there, but like, it is. is? Okay. Well, the nineties was like huge, you know, it was around every corner. Um, And so it was this like escape from the world. You know, believe it or not, I felt really safe in this, in this, you know, space full of like, men you know having sex and and just drugs everywhere i felt i think it makes sense because it's a space that has a clearly defined and understood purpose yeah and and it was uh right like this is way it's like church in a way this is why you come to church to sit in you and hear the message this is why you come to this place is to well not quite sit but also get (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly like for me it was safer than the world outside it was safer than the the straight people and the racist people and the the homophobic people. And it was just safer, um, even though some people would consider going on what was going on in that building incredibly unsafe. Like I felt very comfortable uh, in there and I would have like lived there if I could. It was it was really kind of like. um, Well, and I think the darkness is a really interesting metaphor, right? And the sort of feeling most seen in a place where you can literally not be seen. Right. Oh, yeah. It was always dark in there. And it was, you know, like I said, it was like a safe spot. Everyone needs that. <laughs> All right. Take care you. of yourself. Okay. You too. I'll talk to you. Wow. As I was listening to Brian tell his story, right, and read from his piece, I wondered about the other perspective a lot. Yeah. yeah. You know, and you know, what she took away, did she understand, you know, like, what did she internalize? Did she feel rejected? Did she feel, did she know somewhere in her gut that maybe he was gay or what in, from her point of view, was this something like that she felt something was wrong with her or, you know what I mean? There's so much we don't get and that I want. And I think that's a really good testament to like the power of the writing which is that it it leaves you wanting more and it doesn't Mm -hmm. deliver the very frustrating way um (laughs) but i think that's what good literature does in a way yeah yeah there's some like poetic license that um like a fiction you know can can lend to that but and i'm 
kind of harking back to like real life, like I always kind of like later on, you know, in hindsight, when I do get that person's um, perspective and that reveal of what, like whatever they were going through, you know, cause we're not in other people's heads and we're not, um, you know, mind readers. Mm-hmm. I always kind of feel like, oh shit, like I wasn't as perceptive or as open or like, where was I? I was like, so, so distracted or I had um, horse blinders on or like, I feel like I'm empathetic, but maybe I'm not it so much. And then I go down like this crazy, um, you know, like anxiety about like where the hell I was. And then, but yeah, that's always like an interesting and like, and then yeah, like so exactly what we're talking about. So like, if only I would have known that piece of information, all a lot of this could have been avoided, but then, I mean, that's I'm like, gonna, that's like the of definition like, of dramatic yeah, yeah. irony, you know? Yeah. And it reminds me of like every movie where it's like, or every sitcom or like every kind of trope that's like, okay, if that person only would have told that person or if that scene, like the, a lot of the time, like the viewer, <laughs> the reader, like can connect that or like, right. Like, so I, I if I yeah. hear you correctly, Carla, I think what you are trying to say is that if we all made better decisions, <laughs> literature would be horrible. And <laughs> therefore, no. healthy communication is a detriment to uh, culture and entertainment. Right. That's that's yes. where we're landing. <laughs> I'm of the mind. Of like, let's communicate IRL and then save it for the drama of like poetry and fiction and memoir. Oh, I see. I see. OK, 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 OK. <laughs> let's save it for the page. <laughs> let's save it. For that's the page. like unpopular opinion, but. I'm, or right. But I mean, like life informs the page, right? Or like. Art. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I mean, in, in so many ways, and especially when writing fiction and poetry, you know, your your fantasy worst self can play out. And that's delightful. Um, yeah. You know, and in, in nonfiction, you can definitely have like speculative or, you know, sections that are firmly rooted in the imagination. It is possible to explore those possibilities, you know, mm-hmm. done carefully and not overused using it um you know but you know it's funny because you think of something and then you immediately think of an example where it was done poorly and so you're like so don't overuse it um (laughs) but you know everything is simply a matter of um you know balance and knowing how much to use and when to but it's um stories like these um you know brian's work and um the collection it's like i think it as a reader, like I learned so much and like now I can like take my takeaway is literally like going to better my life and like better my communication in a way. And like maybe a little bit of my relationships too. And that's the beauty and the power of word and like the, how well this was, yeah, like how well this was written, but I'm just like the, the value of, um, but see, this is this is, I think, where two year age difference is so big. Oh, OK, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> tell me elder millennial. Uh-huh. Yep, yep, yep. And I think my little Gen X-y cuspy self is like, mm, nah, dog, oh, yeah. I don't learn. Okay. I don't learn shit. Um, <laughs> I learned harsh. No, I learned I learned about Brian. I learned what he went through. I learned about mm-hmm. the life he lived. And I feel like I got a lot of insight okay. into a fascinating yeah, yeah. mind. Um, but I don't think it was like I don't think this is a memoir that would make somebody necessarily like sober up who wasn't already mm-hmm. on their journey there. You know, 
I feel like this is a memoir of somebody sharing their experience of working toward a certain kind of sobriety um, and toward a certain kind of stability and self-acceptance. But I also think that like, I don't know that it's a cautionary tale, you know, and I don't know that it's got a moral at the end. I think it's very human and very um, complex in that, you know, I I don't think Brian has all the answers. I think it's one complicated and beautiful telling of a life, but I'm not sure that I'm supposed to me, you know, and maybe again, this is that generational thing, but I'm not like, oh, I'm going to treat better people better. I don't want to treat people better. Okay. You know, (laughs) right. I mean, you kind of take what yeah, yeah. you're I a better mean, person it, you're a better person than no, i am no no no, no, no. And, well i mean i don't know about no, all you that, are but. you are but that's okay and that's the thing is it offers us both possibilities is what i'm trying to say right <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 i agree with that more so than like the um like the extremes of each but yeah and then brian does say you know like if if the, he could influence like one other like young black gay man out there as a reader um but not necessarily like a a, like a coming of age or a guide or anything like that i think that it it kind of like similar to um what you were talking about with um james baldwin and yona harvey's introduction where it's like just kind of the legacy you know, and yeah. like not feeling not feeling so alone. And then like, I think there's a complicated and beautiful history of um, African-American memoir in specific, you know, mm-hmm. that you could say goes back to, you know, the, like the mid 19th century, really. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of begin to see like the articulation of self. And, you know, I think something mm-hmm. that maybe a lot of memoirists don't realize is that when you are a person of color writing a memoir and when you are a person of color who is also queer and when you are a person of color who is, you know, also a recovering addict, um, there, there is an increased pressure to have, to represent, right. And in many ways, um, you know, and that was, I think what Brian was talking about that burden that James Baldwin had, you know, that James Baldwin was speaking for black people and he was speaking in some ways for queer black people. And he was speaking specifically to a certain kind of queer black man, but he was also speaking to oppression and he was also speaking to the American culture at large. And so, you know, you have to, this like, person who's an intellectual, who's tearing their story, who's, you know, literary, who's a talented writer and a storyteller, but also underneath you have the very real emotions and the real darkness that kind of, you know, belies that. Um, and right. so, yeah, you know, I, 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 uh, Carla, please save me from myself. What are you reading? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. A couple of thoughts for the road. I am reading Say It Hurts by Lisa Sumi. Um, I just started it the other day. Very incredible. Pittsburgh poet. Um, I think this book, it kind of fits what we're saying. It's, I don't, it can exist, you know, self-contained, but it is talking about coming of age in the Midwest and like Mm -hmm. coming out and queerness and um, that intersection and that um, I want to say struggle and 
yeah, that, that life experience. So, so far, um, yeah, a couple, couple, well, I want to say like a third of the way in and yeah, 1010 would recommend Lisa Sumi's Say It Hurts. It's relatively new. I think it came out, I think during the pandemic, like 2020, something like that. Okay. Um, you know, I have, yeah. and, <laughs> um, okay. I actually wanted to talk today about a TV show. Um, oh. so what I'm reading are the subtitles to the TV show I'm watching, um, which is Lizzo's let's hear it for the big girls. And okay. I wanted to love this show so much, Carla, mm. like oh, it's, it's big girls dancing. It's Lizzo. It's yeah. booty shaking. It's a celebration of bodies. It's amazing. But then also there is a dark side to it, mm-hmm. which is that in fighting how much uh, beauty standards have hurt them, yeah, they are constantly sort of reinforcing those beauty standards mm-hmm. you know and i was watching it like with the kids which was a mistake um but also they're toddlers so i was like whatever and then i sort of started to think about how like my daughter's too so she doesn't understand what's happening she was like princesses and i was like yeah sure those are princesses um yeah, yeah i know but also you know there was this thing where they were like right on this mirror, you know, like all the bad things that people have said about you and then break it. And I was like, you know, and as they started writing all like the horrible things, like, I was like, I don't relate to this at all. You know, like I don't hate myself and I don't, I don't even want my daughter to think of herself this way. And I wanted it to just be like a celebration of what these bodies can do. And, you know, the stamina that it takes to be a backup dancer at any size and just show me these incredibly fit and strong and capable bodies, like executing these, you know, dance numbers in, you know, absolute like synchronization. Like that's what I wanted to see. I thought it was Mm going to be a dance show, but it's really sort of become like group therapy for a lot of traumatized people plus a dance show and i'm gonna see it through to the end mm-hmm. because i you know i, I want to show like this to get good ratings and i want it to yeah. be able to evolve past the trauma but sure. it just revealed like so much trauma around our bodies and mm-hmm. so much sadness and i just i think in so many ways i walked away thinking like oh man, I both understand why this needs to be. And it also, in many ways, like really triggered a lot of things that I didn't even think I had and that maybe it shouldn't have. I don't know. So I I think I I wanted to bring it to you because you're good at like, you know, setting it straight. So what do you think? Right. So there is that, um, that layer of like performative Right. But then I also, as a consumer, I want to be like, hell yeah, I fucking get it, Lizzo. I love your work. I love what you do. I love, you know, like who she is. Right. Um, but then like if if, uh, you know, Lizzo has to hustle and get that, you know, like get that paycheck, like, please do. And maybe that's working both ways where she's like very conscious and of like how the dynamic of like whatever her relationship is with Amazon prime or with Amazon or whatever, like 
maybe she's exploiting that a little bit and the added um, well or the genre or right or the genre like, has certain conventions right and so she was like okay yeah. i i want a reality show with big girls dancing and somebody was like okay where do we begin to exploit their pain you right. know what I mean? Like I mean, this is has show. to be like, right. Like this is be. what, yeah, this is what the genre demands of it. And so then if they and, didn't, yeah, well, gonna, no, go ahead. No, no. But oh no, I was just getting excited because like I've said this a lot. Um, in like um, when it comes to art or when it comes to poetry, memoir, etc., with pick pick the genre, I definitely believe, and it kind of cancels out like some of the stuff I was saying during our conversation. But humans thrive on drama I am it's like boiled down boiled down to and especially if you're going to add like entertainment to it we love to see it we love to see the trauma like we that's kind of sure it puts our it puts our own pain into context always and forever and we feel better about our own lives right like and I mean yeah even as a big girl right you're sitting there comparing yourself and you're thinking could I do this could I hold up what would I do Mm. like what would happen if I went on there and I was like actually I really love myself (laughs) like would they be like can't have you on the show you love yourself you know what I mean like I would just be like I'm just here to dance and love myself I don't hate myself I actually think I'm great um I don't know right. what to tell you. Do you know I mean it took me a long time to get there and now I'm here and maybe right. I don't want to talk about all the times that I didn't love myself because I do love myself now. So, you know, like it just feels like, oh, I just want to watch these women dance, um, <laughs> which is, you know, now that I say it that way, it makes me feel like I'm some horrible shut up and dribble person. Like, oh, like I want to. I want to get to the place where we can both have these conversations without it feeling exploitative and I can be empathetic. And also we can bask in the glory of really athletic, big women dancing their asses mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and I wish yeah. that all three things were possible and there was a safe way to discuss it. That didn't hurt anybody's feelings or diminish their trauma while at the same time, acknowledging that they themselves are engaging in the exploitation of their own pain. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah. for joining us for Charla Cultural episode two. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks with uh, yeah. what I think is one of my favorite seasons yet. See, it's oh. the second it's the second season. So I can say that um, <laughs> <laughs> and mean it. All right. Yes. Gracias, amor. Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez, committed to social justice and translation, placing women of color at the center of the conversation. City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression. Charla Cultural is hosted by Carla Lamb and Adriana E. Ramirez. Voice of Goddess is Alexis Jabour. Editorial support by Clarissa E. Leon. Production design and brand management by Little Owl Creative. Our theme song is Colombia Folk by Luis Alfonso. And thank you as always to our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.